welcome back to Food Toxicology. I'm Greg Muller, the instructor for the course. When we talk about things toxic, quite often we fall into a trap of thinking about worst case scenarios. And in terms of the popular media representations of toxicology and all things toxic, cancer has to be perhaps one of the most dreaded outcomes of toxicosis. What we're going to try to do today in our lecture called teratogenesis, mutagenesis, and carcinogenesis is look at these three toxic endpoints, try to get a, a level of familiarity with the terminology, the processes, uh, the difficulty that we have in a course like this is the ability to bring in all of the understanding that is currently available. And I'll direct you to other resources, other courses, uh, fields of study that deal with this at a much greater depth than perhaps we can in this course. Our goal here is, is actually to try and give you at least an introductory understanding of the relationship of these three toxic outcomes and how uh, food toxicology might have a relationship to each. Our learning objectives uh, for today, we're going to try to define what each of these are, teratogenesis, mutagenesis, and carcinogenesis. We're going to try to describe the relevance of the various uh, cellular processes, nuclear processes of replication, transcription, and translation, and how it relates to teratogenesis, mutagenesis, and carcinogenesis. We're going to try as well to summarize the mechanism of these three outcomes and try to differentiate them, although there is some significant crossover between the three. In other words, a mutation might have a toxic endpoint of cancer. We're going to try to discuss some examples of known teratogens, mutagens, and carcinogens. And again, your readings uh, for this particular lecture module will help you identify some of those in detail that I can't explore in just a lecture. Now, one of the things as we un start an understanding of these endpoints, we have to go back and brief ourselves once again on the molecules of life because, in fact, we're going to be damaging or changing the molecules of life in these particular toxic processes. So some of these toxicants can actually react with or modify DNA. And the change here in terms of uh, differentiating it from some of the other toxic endpoints that we've talked about in the course is that these changes, although they may be acute damage or maybe even chronic damage, they can actually lead to a heritable change. And so the offspring, in a certain sense, suffers the consequence of the toxic exposure of the parents. And so uh, that is a, a very strong difference between some of the aspects of mutagenesis and teratogenesis that we don't have in some of the other manifestations of toxicosis. There also can be just a change in cellular growth or development, okay, in terms of the mutagenesis of an individual. Now, in terms of uh, uh, the, the processes and the molecules of life, the process of replication perpetuates uh, the genetic code, the genetic information, in terms of copying the DNA from, uh, in a cellular division process. We then have transcription and translation that express this genetic information quite often in terms of the diversity of proteins that provide many of our life processes. I've shown this cartoon before, and I'll show it again just to, to make sure that you've got a good background, but we've got those three basic processes of replication, transcription, and translation. 
replication happening within the nucleus, and then in the ribosomes, we've got RNA that actually helps produce uh, proteins in the cytoplasm. Those proteins, with their great diversity of structure and function, uh, make us who we are. And there's a tremendous opportunity to, for disruption of uh, all of the consequences of this orchestrated process. Now, reviewing again some of the protein functions that we have, uh, we have proteins that form antibodies and they uh, recognize molecules of invading organisms, an immunological factor. They form receptors which help uh, translate and recognize uh, other proteins or hormones in terms of communication within the body. Uh, they form enzymes that help assemble or digest. They form neurotransmitters or hormones. Uh, and they also provide structure to many uh, uh, cells and uh, <coughs> to uh, many organelles, uh, such as channels and pores. Now, some of the endpoints that we're going to talk about when we talk about these heritable changes or changes to the molecules of life include uh, teratogenesis, mutagenesis, and carcinogenesis. Teratogenesis uh, comes from the Greek word monster. Uh, it actually is the origin or production of malformed fetuses or offspring, uh, sometimes with uh, reasonably horrible consequences. Uh, quite often, uh, teratogenesis, uh, which may be embryonic in terms of its uh, initial stages, uh, actually disrupts uh, the uh, production of a viable fetus. There we have also mutagenesis, where we can define that as the production of a mutation or a change in the genetic code of an organism. And we have carcinogenesis, which is a cancer formation. We'll go through all the different definitions of various types of cancer, the jargon, if you will, um, and it includes carcinoma and malignant neoplasms, new cell growth. In terms of DNA replication, to review, we we see a structure in DNA that does imply uh, replication. We all wish we uh, were, were uh, as bright as we are now, knowing what we know uh, 150 years ago. Uh, DNA occurs uh, via multiple uh, enzyme action. Its helix uh, unravels in terms of replication. The strands part, and then the DNA replicates. Uh, it's a part of the mitosis and meiosis uh, processes. And uh, for those of you that have had uh, uh, biology know that this process is not always perfect. Uh, we do have repair enzymes uh, to go back and, and uh, fix uh, imperfections uh, from this particular process. It, it is not perfect. Um, what we find in terms of replication is that it does duplicate uh, cell DNA. In mitosis, we have one somatic cell uh, with two N chromosomes that divides to create two cells with two N chromosomes. And so we, we get a uh, complete replication there. Uh, in uh, the number and the quality and quantity of the chromosomes uh, should be conserved in this process. We trigger mitosis with various proteins and receptors that can include external signals, uh, some hormones, internal factors, growth factors to start these cell uh, replication, cell division processes. In meiosis, it's the process where germ cells uh, divide into gametes. And because this is a part of sexual reproduction, uh, these uh, cell divisions, uh, and there are two cell divisions, produce uh, four daughter cells. Each one of these has a different set of chromosomes, 
and the fact is, in terms of uh, genetic diversity, it only has one of the sets required for the final organism. That other set will come to it via fertilization uh, in uh, uh, sexual reproduction. Now, in terms of DNA transcription, the DNA is copied uh, via this expendable uh, messenger RNA molecule. It codes uh, for specific proteins, and this occurs in the nucleus of the cell in terms of this particular transcription process. The translation that follows occurs in the cytosol. The messenger RNA leaves the nucleus, uh, interacts with uh, transfer RNA, amino acids, and enzymes uh, to form these uh, building blocks. This uh, transfer RNA um, has three base codons, and these each correspond uh, to coding for a different amino acid. Uh, there can be obviously disruptions there, coding or miscoding. These amino acids are added one at a time to form a chain. This becomes a polypeptide. These polypeptides correspond to a proton with a specific a protein to, with a specific amino acid sequence. Now, in terms of uh, transcription and translation, when we have this double strand of nucleotides, uh, they're make, made up of uh, uh, nucleic acids. Uh, uh, in sugar and phosphate groups, uh, the nucleotides are referred to as cytosine, thymine, uracil, adenine, and guanine, CTUAG. Uh, we get base pairing uh, across specific uh, nucleotides. The base pairing occurs uh, adenine, thymine, guanine, cytosine, um, ATGC. This base pairing allows for the, the uh, structure, the helical structure uh, of the DNA. The gene is the base uh, sequences of bases that code for a specific uh, sequence of amino acids, as I said before, and the codon is the sequence of three bases that actually code for a single amino acid. So we will get these codes, uh, and you can find in your book tables of those codes. ACG, for example, codes for serine. Uh, AAA codes for lysine. And so these present, because they are chemicals, the opportunity for chemical reaction and upset in a toxicosis episode. Transcription uh, is a copying. The DNA unzips and enzymes uh, make an RNA copy. There are some differences in terms of the copy, uh, the copy that is made. Uh, T is translated for uh, uracil, and so we get a UA, not a TA. Uh, we get deoxyribose uh, on the molecules instead of ribose. Uh, messenger RNA formation does uh, allow for transport of this substrate to the cytoplasm. The next process is translation, and this is the protein formation. The messenger RNA actually provides the blueprint. The uh, uh, RNA supports uh, transfer RNA uh, in, in terms of amino acid transport. In terms of the structure and function of DNA, these nucleotides uh, form chains. The nucleotides form a codon. The multiple codons form a gene. Uh, these multiple genes then form chromosomes, and these multiple chromosomes give us our DNA. And that's the relationship of the uh, substructure to the function of DNA. These uh, graphics give you an idea, uh, again, two-dimensional structural representations of a three-dimensional uh, alpha helix. Uh, it's important, uh, again, just so that you realize there is a potential for interaction of chemicals with these molecules of life. 
uh, many of these chemicals, and especially on the next slide, which is a close-up in this case of a DNA-RNA complex, uh, you can see many um, uh, nitrogen and oxygen residues, uh, nitrogen residues being uh, purple colored and the oxygen residues being red colored in this. Uh, these are uh, electro-rich, uh, electron-rich uh, zones that are perhaps susceptible to nucleophilic, or, I'm sorry, electrophilic attack, uh, for, for instance, uh, from free radicals. And so there is an opportunity in the molecules of life for chemical reaction and therefore disruption of the uh, transcription and translation processes. Some of the errors uh, that can occur can occur in base pairing. Uh, some of the repair enzymes and other enzymes can be disrupted. Some of the regulatory genes, the operons and the termina termination um, sequences can actually uh, be modified. There can be a change in methylation patterns. There can be some consequences in some of the post-transcriptional, translational processing of some of the end products. All of these might end up with a toxic consequence in terms of uh, mutagenesis, carcinogenesis, or, or uh, teratogenesis. In terms of potential DNA chemical interactions, we have the potential direct uh, uh, alkylation. Uh, if we have an alkylating chemical, uh, mustard gas in a chemical warfare agent, uh, the mustards were strong alkylating uh, reagents uh, used in chemical warfare uh, uh, attack. Uh, it not only had acute toxicosis, but had the potential for uh, uh, mutagenesis. Uh, it provides the ability to form a covalent adduct between the DNA and the chemical, and we'll see that uh, on one of our further slides here. We can have intercalcation, um, calcation, non-covalent binding of a chemical uh, between an adjacent base pairs. We can have uh, cross-linkage, an inter or intra uh, strand covalent binding of a chemical, and we can also uh, essentially cut the DNA or break the DNA, scissor it, uh, uh, in terms of uh, one or both strands of the DNA itself. In terms of the formation of DNA addicts, the mechanism of chemical carcinogenesis and DNA modification by chemicals uh, is an active area of research. Uh, aflatoxin B1, a mycotoxin found on many grains such as corn uh, and barley. Um, aflatoxin B1 uh, is a chemical that uh, is electrophilic. Uh, it has a uh, binding capacity uh, with guanine. Uh, this shows it in, in a more of a three-dimensional representation. This is the molecular arrangement between the nucleotide and the aflatoxin residue. Uh, these have been borne out in terms of its potential toxic consequences. Let's switch over and for an analysis of uh, teratogenesis. Uh, teratology is the study of the frequency and causation and development of congenital malformations uh, in the conceptus. Uh, there's complex mechanisms uh, not totally understood uh, in terms of the relationship of chemicals uh, to uh, teratogenesis. Uh, we do understand that there are certain critical time frames in terms of formation of structures or substructures in the organism in terms of embryogenesis, and that disruption during those critical times will yield uh, malformed uh, fetus. There are some natural, uh, as you will, bad path, uh, spontaneous abortions. Uh, there are mistakes that do happen in terms of the development of organisms. 
uh, in the human. Uh, the rate of spontaneous abortion is uh, estimated to be somewhere between 10 to 20 percent. Uh, uh, one in 10 to two, uh, one in five uh, conceptions uh, resolve in spontaneous abortion uh, for whatever reason, and there are multiple reasons. In humans, the critical uh, time period is in the first eight weeks of gestation. Uh, typically, uh, you have probably seen that they tell new mothers uh, not to be drinking or smoking cigarettes uh, during their pregnancy. Uh, the uh, potential outcome of teratogenesis, uh, fetal alcohol syndrome, uh, for example, in terms of a mutation, uh, is perhaps uh, 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 one of the consequences of excessive alcohol consumption during uh, gestation. Uh, it happens in terms of the embryonic stage, and there can be morphological defects uh, in specialized tissues or in organs. Um, there can be the development of neoplastic endpoints uh, in the fetus, uh, in other words, the pre-stages of uh, cancer as one potential uh, developmental consequence of teratogenesis. There is a pretty healthy list, uh, uh, healthy is probably not the, the correct word to use, of known human teratogens. Uh, unfortunately, and some of these are in your readings, um, we come to know about these teratogens uh, uh, because of uh, the bad consequences, uh, unplanned events, uh, unknown uh, uh, certain toxic interactions of a chemical that was designed for one particular purpose uh, and ends up having uh, a toxic consequence. Uh, DES or diethylstilbestrol was a classic uh, case study in uh, teratogenesis of a synthetic uh, human-made uh, uh, pharmaceutical. This photo gives you an example of uh, some of the structural uh, um, defects associated with teratogenesis. This is a five-legged frog. It has one too many limbs. Uh, this was uh, one of the frogs uh, recovered, I believe it was Minnesota, in the 1990s, late 1990s. Uh, there was an observation. Actually, it started with, a, uh, I believe, a junior high school class uh, doing some ecological studies. Uh, and uh, they happened on a collection of uh, 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 frogs with various malformations, missing limbs, extra limbs. Uh, in terms of the media, the consequences, uh, the observations of teratogenesis uh, are always linked to toxic exposures, and so the chase was on in this particular analysis, find the toxin uh, that was responsible for these mutations um, and teratogenesis. Uh, in fact, in this particular case, uh, although there were several chemicals, uh, and typically uh, pesticides, that were associated with these particular environments, uh, the actual mechanistic analysis of the teratogenesis was an infectious process, uh, and uh, so it was a biological process in early stages of uh, embryogenesis, although there was an environmental quality linkage in that this particular uh, fluke, I believe, uh, uh, seemed to thrive in highly nutrient-laden waters, and so the whole um, uh, uh, ecological impacts of nutrients in this aquatic ecosystem did perhaps have a linkage to this particular teratogenesis. This is a, an example of a gross malformation. Uh, this is ovine cyclopia. Uh, this is from the uh, components, uh, the toxic components in uh, veratrum, 
Uh, skunk cabbage is one of the, the uh, common names. False heliobore uh, is another. Uh, it's a fairly uh, dramatic uh, uh, teratogenesis uh, from a naturally occurring compound. Uh, when this, these particular, uh, the uh, sheep are uh, exposed uh, in utero uh, while the uh, mother is grazing and happens across this particular plant compound. Fairly dramatic teratogenesis. Another example of teratogenesis in livestock is uh, a syndrome known as crooked calf disease. Uh, it results from ingestion of the quinolizidin type alkaloids, uh, one being anagyrene from the lupin plant. Its manifestation in terms of its uh, uh, physical uh, morphology is the bowed leg and arched uh, back. Uh, the livestock born with this syndrome often uh, survive, uh, although a challenged life uh, even still. Uh, uh, it is uh, very dramatic in terms of its physical manifestation. Fairly disturbing case study uh, has to do uh, with the human impact of a similar birth defect from lupin. This particular case study started in September 1980 when uh, a young uh, a newborn was, a baby boy was uh, brought to a clinic uh, with uh, severe bone deformities in his arms uh, and hands and a partial absence of the forearm bones uh, and absent thumbs. Uh, there was some medical history taken. There was uh, some uh, follow-up investigation of potential birth defects from uh, regional herbicide spraying, uh, in a certain sense, they were, they were looking for possible causative agents. In terms of follow-up investigation, uh, the mother did provide some evidence that uh, the, her goats, uh, and they lived on a dairy farm, a goat dairy farm, and drank the milk products from those goats, that uh, her goats also gave birth to kids that were stillborn or with deformed uh, legs uh, that uh, looked a little bit like this uh, crooked calf uh, sort of syndrome. Uh, they also found that the, the family dog gave birth to puppies. Uh, the family dog was also exposed to the goat milk of the goats that did feed uh, in the area where lupin uh, was available. Uh, local goat's milk was a common item in their household uh, and the mother did consume this particular product during her pregnancy. Uh, they did find, uh, in terms of follow-up investigation, uh, sufficient uh, rangeland uh, in this Northern California area um, uh, with the lupin uh, growing on it, uh, in addition to some other uh, toxic plants, including hemlock and skunk cabbage. Uh, this particular, because we don't do clinical trials on, on humans, uh, there is a tremendous amount of circumstantial evidence uh, that this was uh, a lupin anagyrene uh, demonstrated uh, a birth defect. Uh, some follow-up uh, analyses at regional universities did identify that the lupin alkaloids uh, are available in goat milk following ingestion of, of lupin and lupin seeds. And so uh, uh, the potential for causation uh, is there, although in this particular case in N equals one, uh, a very unfortunate situation, but uh, one without uh, a firm resolution in terms of cause and effect. 
Our next uh, area of analysis is going to be mutagenesis, and this is uh, where we have somatic cell mutations yielding some metabolic uh, dysfunction, uh, potentially leading to carcinogenesis. Uh, in germ cell mutation, we have the potential for heritable change, as I said before, that the uh, sins of the father become, unfortunately, the sins of the offspring in terms of a, an inherited uh, mutation. Um, we can have a point mutation where we have a base substitution, uh, including base analogs. Uh, quite often, these are found in natural products. Uh, some mushrooms, for example, their toxic mode of action are presenting uh, base analogs, false bases that substitute in and cause a mutation effect. Uh, there can be a frame shift. Uh, the book outlines uh, uh, how these uh, particular uh, instances of mutation actually do happen in terms of uh, um, base rearrangement. There can also be a chromosomal aberration that yields uh, a structural uh, anomaly in terms of the chromosomes or a numerical anomaly, and we'll see that in a karyotype analysis. Karyotypes are patterns uh, that are photographed during uh, metaphase. They help us uh, examine for chromosomal defects, and so we take a look and we uh, outline and enumerate all the chromosomes in trying to investigate a mutation-based cause for a particular uh, physiological outcome, for instance, an enzyme deficiency uh, or a morphological uh, uh, challenge. Um, this gives us an idea of uh, the 23 chromosomes, their paired chromosomes, uh, all the way through to the XY, which are the sexually uh, secondary sexual characteristic determining uh, chromosomes. Females are XX, males are XY. Uh, you'll notice that the Y chromosome is uh, uh, pretty stunted relative to the X chromosome, uh, which does in fact carry a tremendous amount of uh, genetic information on it. In terms of the aberrations uh, that karyotyping help us uh, identify are, are aneuploidy or polyploidy. Uh, it uh, helps us uh, take a look at either the loss or gain of the various complete chromosomes, the change in the number, uh, whether it's an absence of one uh, chromosome or uh, the uh, addition of an extra one. Um, because these are microscopically visible, uh, this is uh, a, uh, a way to confirm a potential uh, uh, mutation, uh, a readable disease defect. Um, you've probably heard of Down syndrome, which is a 21-plus uh, uh, trisomy. So we have an actual extra chromosome here on chromosome 21. Uh, Kleinfelder syndrome, Turner syndrome, these uh, have to do with uh, secondary sexual characteristics. Uh, XXY, uh, Kleinfelder syndrome, uh, two X chromosomes and a Y chromosome in terms of the sexually differentiating chromosomes. Um, these syndromes typically uh, in uh, uh, Jacobson syndrome, uh, which is uh, uh, a uh, XYY or super male syndrome, uh, and uh, Kleinfelder's and Turner's, typically uh, these chromosomal aberrations will yield sterile offspring. One of the ways we examine uh, chemicals for mutagenic effects is a simple test developed by Bruce Ames at uh, University of California at Berkeley. In the Ames test, as it's come to known, uh, we take Salmonella bacteria. This particular uh, strain has a histidine coding defect, and so in fact uh, it doesn't reproduce quite well. 
what we do is we dose these cultures, these seminal cultures, uh, with uh, potentially mutagenic chemicals uh, and uh, observe to see if uh, we mutate it and uh, essentially uh, change this defect to allow for cell division and growth. Uh, essentially, if we see cell division and growth, uh, we uh, are observing a potential mutation because the initial strain did not have that capability. Uh, when we do this test, we add the salmonella strain, uh, we add the test chemical, and typically we'll also add some rat hepatocytes because we want to look at the metabolic products of biotransformation and judge if they, in fact, are the mutagenic agents. And again, the outcome of this test, that growth, uh, will indicate that a, that a chemical compound is a mutagen. Well, let's switch over now to carcinogenesis. Carcinogenesis is a complex uh, orchestration of chemical and uh, biochemical and physical cellular processes. Uh, it is a typically regarded as a multi-step, multifactorial disease, although we have models of uh, one-hit cancer. Uh, in terms of uh, carcinogenesis, we have a procarcinogen or a carcinogen. A procarcinogen can be non-reactive until biotransformation has made it into a carcinogen, so this encompasses kind of both cases of bioactivation or not. Um, in terms of carcinogenesis, the interaction of this chemical with DNA uh, will directly yield to mutation than cancer, and this is the one-hit uh, theory of cancer. In terms of uh, multi-step um, uh, pathway, this will yield this initial mutation, uh, followed by some promoting agent that encourages cell reproduction of these mutated cells uh, in a promotion process yielding cancer. And so we not only have a carcinogen, but we have a promoting agent. And so it's a multifactorial disease uh, in terms of requiring a, an initiator chemical and a promoter chemical. Some of the definitions associated with cancer, uh, broad-based cancer is a malignant tumor that has the ability to metastasize or invade uh, some of the surrounding tissues. A neoplasm or tumor is a general term that we find uh, for uncontrolled growth of cells that becomes progressively worse with time. Uh, neoplasia is uh, the growth of new tissue with abnormal and unregulated cell proliferation. Uh, the good cancer diagnosis, uh, if you have one, is that we have a benign tumor, a tumor that does not metastasize. Metastasis is uh, uh, a more negative outcome of a cancer diagnosis, and this is a cancer that has the ability to establish these secondary uh, uh, outcroppings or tumor growth at new locations. Uh, the fact is uh, cancer is typically a disease that uh, challenges other tissues in terms of blood flow, uh, space. Uh, there can be uh, significant pain and organ destruction associated with uh, these neoplasia. Carcinoma is a malignant tumor uh, that actually uh, arises in the epithelium, so it's an epithelial cancer. Uh, it's the most common form of cancer. It usually spreads in the lymphatic system. Quite often you'll look at uh, in a diagnosis of carcinoma, you'll look at sentinel uh, lymph nodes to see if, in fact, it is uh, staged beyond the original site uh, of the tumor growth. Sarcoma is a malignant tumor in muscle or connective tissue, so uh, it's just a beginning uh, originating tissue differentiation. It's usually spread uh, in the bloodstream, and it frequently metastasizes in the lung with negative outcome. 
In terms of multi-stage uh, carcinogenesis, when we have initiation, we have some sort of chemical or a virus or some sort of spontaneous cause of a DNA lesion. We then have some cell division that perpetuates this DNA lesion. Um, if it doesn't get uh, promoted, there may not be uh, an outcome. Uh, we find that some chemicals can both initiate and promote, uh, and some can just remain uh, as a, a kind of a precursor stage uh, and not promoted. I've read one estimate that we get uh, something like 100 uh, hits of uh, quote-unquote cancer cells every day in our bodies, our immune system, uh, lack of promotion, uh, genetic defects of those particular cells actually uh, allow them to not resolve uh, and develop into uh, a cancer. In terms of the one hit uh, theory, uh, it is going to be a non-threshold reversible uh, process in terms of uh, initiation to cancer. Now these initiated cells, uh, typically there's no phenotypic difference uh, uh, from the parent cells, uh, they have some sort of excess or deficiency of enzymes uh, of various types. Uh, they typically will develop some resistance to cytotoxic chemicals. They may have faster or slower metabolism, and it's this property that actually makes them a, a product or a challenge in terms of chemotherapy. Uh, we try to, for instance, uh, give cytotoxic drugs, uh, chemo therapy reagents uh, to a patient in hopes that the cancer cells will uptake these cytotoxic drugs faster than uh, the surrounding tissues. These uh, cells have uh, impaired cellular communication. They have enhanced response to various growth factors and resistance to terminal differentiation. In other words, a differentiation that is going to terminate the cell growth. In terms of promotion, we find uh, that there is a change in the microenvironment of cells. Uh, the uh, chemical viral or spontaneous induced uh, clonal proliferation uh, helps these uh, initiated cells. The growth control factors uh, and immune function, endocrine control, communication, metabolic, and apoptosis all help uh, in terms of uh, changing the uh, proliferation of these cells. This is typically uh, a multi-hit, high-dose kind of promotion. Uh, it, it sometimes is regarded as reversible or a threshold effect. Um, there's been some arguments that, in fact, in many of our rodent cancer assays, uh, these result from um, uh, uh, a high-dose uh, cellular damage, repeated cellular damage from uh, non-realistic uh, rodent uh, doses. Uh, yes, they do develop cancer, but the, it is not because of a direct carcinogenesis of the chemical, but because of the tissue or cellular damage associated with these very, very high doses. In terms of the progression of multi-stage uh, uh, carcinogenesis, uh, these cells uh, demonstrate a complete loss of growth control, uh, some instability in their karyotype. They do lose or gain uh, chromosomal fragments. They might uh, exhibit DNA demethylation or deregulation. Uh, they exhibit some gene amplification, some error-prone DNA repair. It's uh, identifiably irreversible, um, and there might be some similar mechanisms as we have observed in promotion. Now, it is useful for us to classify uh, different types of carcinogens uh, and how they have an impact on cells. 
Uh, genotoxic is the term that we use to refer to a chemical that can act directly on DNA or expression of DNA during translation. And so it can yield some DNA uh, replication errors, point mutations, chromosomal aberration. So for instance, an alkylating agent like mustard gas is genotoxic uh, because it has a direct reactivity with the DNA molecule. As opposed to epigenetic, where they're not DNA reactive and therefore they potentiate uh, cancer, uh, sometimes they'll change uh, some cellular hormone or immune function uh, uh, with their potential toxic impact. Uh, this indirect me mechanism essentially sets the stage for uh, this uncontrolled cell replication and eventual carc uh, carcinogenesis. Genotoxic carcinogens are capable of producing cancer by directly altering the genetic material of the target cells. Uh, these direct uh, carcinogens with no metabolic uh, activation are things like these alkylating agents, uh, nasty critters, next detoxicants. We do have uh, indirect carcinogens that do require some sort of metabolic activation, biotransformation, intoxication. PAHs, as we've discussed, and we'll take a look at how that happens uh, uh, in terms of a chemical reaction here in a moment, uh, are one of a class of indirect carcinogens. Aromatic amines, nitrosamines, in terms of the reaction of nitrites and nitrates used in food processing with proteins in the gut, uh, have been linked to various types of human cancer. Uh, there can be some interaction of natural substances like mycotoxins, and we saw the reaction of aflatoxin B1 with uh, forming a DNA addict. And then inorganic carcinogens, uh, typically the ones of uh, highest consideration, nickel, chromium, cadmium, and arsenic in terms of heavy metal carcinogens. Now, in terms of epigenetic uh, carcinogens, these quite often can be uh, uh, cytotoxic uh, carcinogens uh, that yield cell death, NTA or nitrilotriacetic uh, triacetate, triacetic acid, uh, for a while used in detergents. Uh, the antioxidants uh, that uh, were used in food processing, butyl hydroxytoluene, butyl hydroxyaldehyde, BHA, BHT, uh, cytogenic carcinogens. Tumor promoters, DDT and dioxin, uh, various hormones like estradiol, uh, DES, uh, immunosuppressants uh, used in uh, transplant therapy like cyclosporin A, and then the repeated uh, physical injury of particulates such as uh, asbestos yielding uh, asbestosis and uh, a particular type of uh, lung cancer. In terms of uh, epigenetic uh, carcinogens, uh, let's take a look at the carcinogenic activations of PAHs. Uh, this is benzopyrene. We talked about it, and we talked about this uh, Bay region, which is uh, associated with uh, carcinogenesis. In our biotransformation lecture, you notice that rat hepatocytes will actually uh, yield uh, chemicals that uh, take this nonpolar chemical and try to set it up via phase one and phase two uh, biotransformation with uh, various uh, uh, glucuronides or uh, sugar groups uh, uh, or uh, sulfate groups out on this side of the molecule. In terms of its uh, bioprocessing and biotransformation uh, during uh, its exposure to liver, uh, there can be the formation of this 
epoxide, the 7,8 epoxide, which goes to a diol and then a 7,8 diol epoxide. Um, this is a very reactive substrate. Uh, it is a uh, uh, substrate that is uh, electrophilic and can directly uh, react and form a DNA adduct. And so there is a carcin I mean, a, an indirect activation of a particularly uh, uh, toxic uh, compound. Some of the listings of proven human carcinogens, uh, these come from uh, uh, studies of typically workplace exposure. Uh, carcinogenesis is something that takes uh, uh, usually a decade or two to manifest itself. And so we don't do dose response trials in uh, humans, but we do have uh, occupational or environmental exposure. We find that aflatoxins for amino biphenyl, arsenic, benzene, benzidine, beryllium, bischloroethyl ether, cadmium, chromium-6. Uh, chromium-6 is important because chromium occurs in nature as chromium. Uh, chromium-6 is uh, a, uh, an oxidation state that uh, has a, uh, been used in paints and has caused some uh, tremendous amount of cleanup concern from paint manufacturers. Uh, we find soot in terms of uh, chimney sweeps and, and uh, various lung disease, mineral oils, mustard gas, uh, two naphthalamine nickel vinyl chloride. In terms of substance abuse, uh, alcohol is associated with cancer, uh, as is the chewing of betel nuts in uh, many uh, areas of the globe. Uh, cigarette smoking uh, is another uh, risk for cancer. In terms of exposure uh, to dust and fiber, asbestosis, uh, silicosis, various soots, talcum and wood dust, chronic infection like H. pylori, uh, which uh, yields uh, various uh, uh, gastric upsets, um, including uh, uh, abscesses in the gastrointestinal tract, hepatitis B, hepatitis C, HIV, uh, liver fluke, the papillomavirus is associated with uh, chronic infection and uh, uh, various cancers, and as well infection by the parasite schistosomes, which occur in, occur in uh, natural water bodies. In terms of some of the in initiator chemicals we might be exposed to in the food, many of these are genotoxic chemicals, uh, PAHs, aromatic amines, heterocyclic amines, uh, mycotoxins, nitrosamines, nitrosamides uh, all occur uh, in some aspects of food. Um, it's a potential for dose response in terms of exposure, but these chemicals are around us. Uh, we try and minimize and work with uh, keeping our immune systems healthy, uh, keeping our diets healthy in terms of the amount of fiber uh, and neutral nutrients uh, that we have to minimize the impacts of some of these chemicals. Some of the promoter agents in food, uh, BHT, saccharin, cholic acid, uh, and TCDD, which occurs primarily in the liposphere and therefore impacts us through our food chain, uh, especially through animal products. Alcohol as well is a promoting agent in food. Now in terms of chemical cancer assessment, uh, this table gives you a way uh, that we uh, classify uh, chemicals according to their relative carcinogenicity. Uh, in terms of the groups, they're alphabetical group A, B1, B2, C, D, and F. And in terms of uh, the uh, assessment, we look at the preponderance of data in terms of uh, classifying them uh, for no evidence uh, up to uh, probable human um, 
in terms of the amount of animal or human evidence. And then a known human carcinogen is a group A carcinogen. If you work with this chemical in a laboratory, for example, or an industrial uh, situation, you're going to have to have a tremendous amount of personal protective apparatus on uh, to prevent exposure. Uh, these allow us to rank uh, the um, uh, relative uh, uh, concern over particular chemicals relative to uh, animal tests. Now, animal tests tell us some things. They don't tell us everything. Uh, they are used actively in risk assessment. Uh, there typically is say, uh, the application of a safety factor uh, associated with exposure. Uh, but in terms of rodent study, there's great debate about the meaning of rodent cancer studies and uh, the potential risk to humans uh, has a lot to do with the dose uh, used in these rodent studies. I'm going to focus just a little bit, uh, give you an idea of uh, a uh, uh, food-related uh, 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 cancer, colorectal cancer. Uh, this cartoon gives you a, a little bit of an uh, anatomical organization of the gastrointestinal tract in terms of the the, the colon and the rectum. Uh, obviously, with processing food, there is uh, a, a relatively long period of potential exposure of food and food byproducts, food added as food contaminants, and the toxins, toxins that might occur in the food system. Um, there's a tremendously long, I mean, a relatively long exposure time uh, in um, the colon. Uh, we do have uh, the development potential of uh, various uh, 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 new tissues uh, referred to as colon polyps. Uh, this is a cartoon representation of what these would look like. This is actually the representation from a sigmoidoscopy. Uh, a sigmoidoscopy is a test recommended for many people uh, over the age of 40 in terms of monitoring uh, via visualization uh, uh, of the potential growth or development of polyps or uh, uh, pre-neoplastic lesions uh, in the colon. In terms of risk factors for colon polyps, colon polyps themselves are a risk factor for colorectal cancer. Um, the risk factors for polyps include uh, being over 50, having some previous occurrence of these, uh, some family history, if you have a high-fat, low-fiber diet, uh, smoking, alcohol consumption, sedentary lifestyle, and being overweight are all risk factors for the presentation of, uh, of colon polyps. In terms of the stages of colorectal cancer, um, again, this is a, a disease uh, that is uncontrolled cell growth, uh, stage 0, stage 1, stage 2. At stage 3, what you start seeing is a breakthrough uh, from the intestinal lining or the serosa, as we learned. Um, and perhaps uh, even some infiltration of cancer cells into these uh, uh, sentinel uh, um, uh, lymph nodes and therefore the potential for metastasis and distribution to other organs in the latter stages of this particular cancer. Um, found early, treated early, uh, this can be resolved. Uh, found late, the consequences are not so bright. In terms of common cancers in men and women, uh, in men, prostate cancer uh, is the leading cancer at 32%, lung, colorectal, uh, urinary tract, leukemia, uh, lymphoma. In women, breast cancer is the highest uh, rate at 32%, then lung, colorectal, uh, cancer of the uterus, and then leukemia. Uh, in uh, 
the past century, uh, death from cancer has been on a typically decreasing trend. Uh, and this uh, has had a lot to do with early diagnosis and education about risk factors for cancer. Uh, we've improved our diets. We've limited uh, toxins in terms of uh, drinking water and food and air exposure. Uh, it was interesting that uh, in the early part of the 1900s, uh, uh, after women started getting the right to vote and demanding a stronger role in uh, American society, one of the offshoots of that is that more women started smoking. And so for the middle part of the last century, there was a dramatic increase in lung cancer diagnoses and lung cancer deaths in women. Uh, those have started to, uh, I think it peaked in about 1970, and they too have started to decline as males uh, in lung cancer have started to decline as well. In terms of the causes of cancer, when we look at the epidemiological monitoring, uh, diet is the uh, chief uh, uh, lead cause of cancer. Tobacco smoking, 30%, uh, sexual behavior and alcohol, infection, occupational exposure, UV radiation, and, and, uh, and pollution. So dietary causes of cancer are the greatest at about 35%. In terms of the manifestations, we've talked about what happens on a molecular basis and also perhaps on a cellular basis, what happens when we get kind of the full staging of cancer uh, and typically in some cases with lethal outcome. Uh, this is kidney cancer. It doesn't necessarily have a lethal outcome, although this uh, organ looks pretty uh, enveloped. Uh, this is uh, a tumor and, uh, that is uh, just about the same size as the kidney itself. Um, with uh, kidney cancer that is not metastasized, uh, the survivability, five-year survivability statistics are about 65%, so pretty good outcome. And cancers, if diagnosed earlier, typically have more positive outcome. Liver cancer is uh, uniformly uh, greeted with negative outcomes uh, because of the importance of this particular uh, uh, organ, it's high blood flow. Uh, liver cancer uh, is typical, is a terminal diagnosis. Uh, as you know and understand, the uh, importance of this particular organ in terms of biotransformation and processing of nutrients, you can understand why uh, liver cells uh, that are dominated by these uh, cancer cells uh, no longer function correctly and so no longer can provide what is required for the maintenance of life processes. On the other side of the spectrum, in terms of uh, diagnoses of cancer, basal cell carcinoma or uh, sun cancer uh, from too much uh, exposure to the sun, especially uh, in certain types of populations, uh, is a, a very slow, very treatable cancer. Uh, if it, in fact, uh, is uh, uh, found early on, uh, it is typically uh, uh, cut out uh, of the epidermis. Uh, new drugs uh, now in terms of uh, uh, superficial basal cell carcinomas uh, can actually be used in terms of uh, uh, marshalling an immune response to that area uh, via an immune-mediated uh, response to the chemical. Uh, Aldara is the name of the drug. Uh, again, for superficial basal cell carcinoma, can be treated without any surgical intervention. Well, finally, what we're going to talk about uh, real briefly here uh, is an incident that uh, happened uh, in the past few years uh, that many people involved uh, in food and 
even if you read in the newspaper, uh, have come to known as the uh, acrylamide in food incident. This all started uh, when some Swedish investigators were following up on some industrial exposures of acrylamide. These were workplace exposures. And in doing the uh, analysis and the epidemiological workup, they were finding uh, fairly elevated levels or unexpectedly elevated levels of acrylamide in the non-workplace exposed populations. It caused them to ask the questions, if they're not getting exposed to it in the workplace, where is their exposure? Uh, they started looking at food, and uh, they started doing an analysis of several types of food products, and they showed that the acrylamide levels, uh, substantial acrylamide levels were found in uh, various uh, fried and baked foods, including potato chips, french fries, and various uh, uh, biscuits and cereals. Uh, it forms this chemical compound acrylamide forms as a result of a reaction between various amino acids and sugars at high temperatures above 100 degrees centigrade. Because acrylamide is listed by international agencies as a uh, probable human carcinogen, uh, there became a great amount of concern about exposure to a probable human carcinogen in our food supply. Uh, these products are not uh, easily taken off the shelf. They are uh, a part of uh, the diet. Uh, you talk about uh, various uh, uh, biscuits that are baked at high temperature, uh, fried foods. Uh, these are uh, um, uh, proliferative across uh, the human diet. And so there is a tremendous problem in terms of doing a risk assessment. Uh, if for no other reason, if we were eating this uh, dose of carcinogens, why weren't we all coming down with cancer? The three cancers associated with acrylamide toxicity are colorectal, bladder, and kidney cancer. And in the follow-up analyses to this, um, obviously we did have some uh, rodent studies in terms of uh, carcinogenesis, and we probably had some clinical data to establish it as a probable human carcinogen. Uh, the epidemiological studies that went back and looked at people's uh, diets, uh, their ex potential exposure to acrylamide, and their uh, rate of increased uh, cancers, colorectal bladder and kidney cancer, found that there really was not uh, an epidemiological link. Uh, in fact, the epidemiological data showed that the highest potential doses of acrylamide showed a relative decrease in cancers, in these cancers which the researchers then linked to, well, they might be eating a, a higher fiber in their diet in terms of some of the baked goods uh, that were associated uh, with acrylamide. And so there was a confounding uh, set of data here in the, in the epidemiological studies that uh, uh, actually demonstrated that our concern over acrylamide food, although a concern for follow-up and analysis investigation, has not borne out in terms of risk in terms of the human population. All right. Well, next time we'll try to uh, take some analyses of uh, specific sorts of uh, uh, aspects of food toxicology. Uh, in the next uh, series of lectures, we'll take a look at uh, allergens in food. We'll start taking a look at uh, food additives in food and some of the specific regulatory processes as well as the potential toxicoses associated with these chemicals. Until that time, we'll see you later. Thank you so much.